0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stat. I'm Damien Garde, recording from Stat's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Porstein, coming to you from Stat's worldwide headquarters in Boston.
1: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stat's San Francisco Outpost.
0: It is Thursday, August 22nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week The FDA just rejected
2: a Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug from Sarepta Therapeutics, and we will break down the implications.
1: Next, we'll update you on the world's most expensive drug, the spinal muscular atrophy treatment, Zolgensma. We'll discuss the latest in a data manipulation scandal, and we'll also talk with Stats Shredda Chakradar about a grassroots group dedicated to helping toddlers access the therapy.
0: And finally, we'll talk about the latest from the Chinese biotech scene with Brad Longcar, an investor who runs an ETF focused on biopharma stocks in that market.
1: But first, a word about StatPlus.
0: Enjoying
2: the Read Out Loud Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to StatPlus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D.
0: So this week began with some bad news for Sarepta Therapeutics, which found out on Monday that the FDA had rejected what would have been its second therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a rare and inherited muscle wasting disease.
1: So, Adam, you've been covering this story Was the FDA denial of the Sarepta drug, which is called Vyondis 53, a big surprise?
0: Yeah, Rebecca,
2: it really was. This was a drug that was widely expected to be approved. And more than that, the stated reasons that the FDA rejected a drug, they were concerned about a risk of infections that were related to intravenous infusion ports, and there was some kidney toxicity seen in animal experiments. Now, these are not trivial, but on their own, they really don't justify the rejection particularly for a drug like this, which is going to be used for children with a progressive and fatal disease.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I guess my follow up question to that is if the implication is that people think the FDA's reasoning went beyond what Sarepta has said publicly, what do we think is really going on? Yeah, I mean, this is a strange case. And I think what a lot of people think, and this is
2: speculation to some extent, is is that the FDA appears to be sending a message, you know, that flexibility and leniency are only going to go so far and Sarepta kind of crossed the line. And, And you really have to sort of go back to 2016 when the FDA approved in, in a very contentious and controversial way, and, and we've discussed this before. You know, they approved Sarepta's first Duchenne drug called Exondis fifty one. And you know, there was a lot of controversy over that. And you know, as we discussed last week and I reported, Sarepta has kind of been delinquent in confirming the benefit of Exondis fifty one. And I think that that sort of coupled with maybe some issues and concerns with Vyondus 53, the FDA got mad. And the FDA has kind of put its foot down and is telling Sarepta that they've got to do a better job of proving the benefit of their drugs.
0: One thing that I think is maybe important to note Speaking of the speculation as to what the FDA's actual motives would be, is that when a drug is rejected, the FDA sends a very detailed letter to the company that sponsored the approval or sponsored the application explaining why it was rejected. And so Sarepta has that letter, but we, the public, don't. And that's sort of the source of this speculation. And so I was going to ask you, Adam, I mean, why wouldn't Sarepta just? release the contents or explain them in great detail so that maybe this speculation wouldn't be happening? Yeah, that's a great question, Damien.
2: And I think earlier this week, Sereptus CEO, Doug Ingram, had a conference call with Duchenne Patients and Advocates where he said that releasing the exact contents of that letter, which is called the complete response letter, would be, I think, quote, disrespectful to the FDA. And I think most of us who have been longtime observers of this world kind of scoffed at that because... The FDA doesn't really object to the release of these complete response letters. It's more the other way around. It's that the companies themselves, biotech companies, pharma companies have been really reluctant to have that information out there in the public sphere.
1: So moving to Biopharma's other August scandal, which is, of course, the revelation that Novartis submitted manipulated data to the FDA to secure approval for its gene therapy for spinal muscular atrophy.
2: So when we last spoke on this podcast, we knew that people inside Novartis learned of the data issue in March, but didn't tell the FDA until June, which was about a month after the gene therapy got approved. Now, we knew the FDA was not terribly pleased with that disclosure, and we knew that Novartis was not terribly
0: apologetic either. So what has happened since then, Damien? So we very recently learned that during Novartis' internal investigation into this issue, which preceded them telling the FDA, they dismissed the two top scientists at Avexis, which is the division of the company that developed the gene therapy in question, which is called Zolgensma. So that was kind of interesting because it seemed to imply that there might have been some fault going on, although Novartis did not disclose that in particular. But then we got word from Brian Casper, who was the chief scientist at Avexis and one of the two people who lost his job during the investigation, that he categorically denied any wrongdoing and was, quote, prepared to assert his rights and defend his conduct accordingly, unquote. He also added that he stands proudly behind the safety and efficacy of Zolgensma. So that was kind of interesting, because it suggested that the corporate intrigue going on related to this is not over yet. I think, you know, it's fair to say that Brian Casper's name being put in the statement as having been dismissed in this investigation, kind of suggested that maybe he'd done something wrong. And now he's come out publicly saying that he hasn't, and that he's prepared to defend himself, which carries the implication that there might be some legal wrangling in the future.
1: So what comes next in this saga?
2: So the FDA investigation is still ongoing. There is no specified time frame for when that is going to wrap up. Uh, Novartis is not commenting on the Avexa situation. The product is still on the market and no one says that it shouldn't be.
1: So beyond the corporate intrigue, there's, of course, a very human angle to the Zilgensma story. And that relates to the many families that are trying to get the drug for their toddlers born with SMA.
2: But one family went beyond campaigning for a single child and has enlisted an online army dedicated to speaking up for patients around the country. Stats Shraddha Chakradar wrote a story this week about this fascinating evolution in patient advocacy, and she joins
0: us this week to talk about it. Shraddha, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. So your story centered on the Green family. Their daughter, Maisie, was born with spinal muscular atrophy, a disease that's often fatal within the first few years of life. And their insurance company had refused to pay for Zolgensma, the Novartis gene therapy that costs $2.1 million for a one-time treatment. What happened next?
3: So Maisie's mother, C.G., had set up this Facebook group called Maisie's Army almost a year ago in June 2018, I believe. And they had been keeping people as part of that group posted about Maisie's status because she had been getting another treatment And so when they got this denial from their insurance company, she went to work to tell people to call their insurance company. She actually also ran a social media campaign and got in touch with the head of Twitter philanthropy, Bill Pulte. And they basically flooded the insurance company with emails and calls all to try and get the decision reversed.
2: But Maisie's army didn't disband after she got Zolgensma. What have all of those volunteers been up to since?
3: So pretty much the day that Maisie's decision came down, the army decided that they weren't going to stop at just helping Maisie. They said they wanted to keep going to help any other kids that were in the same position. And there are a lot of support groups on Facebook for kids with spinal muscular atrophy. And that's how they found each other, including this group for Maisie's Army. And anytime there was a family that needed help who was hearing similar things from their insurance company, not covering Zolgensma, they would share their story on the Facebook group. And they've helped five kids already all over the United States just from linking up on Facebook this way about each other's stories.
0: And when you say helped five kids, do you mean they've gotten Zolgensma decisions reversed? Or basically, how are these efforts panning out?
3: That's right. So by raising awareness about several of these kids, the kids insurance companies have reversed their initial denials for Zolgensma, and they have now been approved. One of the major insurers was Aetna, and they actually changed their policy for covering kids with SMA to include gene therapy. So that policy change actually benefited at least two kids that Maisie's Army was working to help.
1: So to step back for a minute, why are payers denying giving these kids Zolgensma in the first place?
3: My understanding is that there is already another treatment, Spinraza, and almost all the kids that Maisie's army has been helping have been on Spinraza. So while a therapy already exists that many of these insurance companies are already paying for, they are hesitant to pay for something new. The other reason is that much of the data for the FDA approval for Zolgensma was in kids under the age of six months. And a lot of the kids that the Army is helping are actually older than six months of age. So some of their physicians have been hesitant to recommend Zolgensma for these kids. Some of them have said that they may not see as much benefit. And so when the physicians are reluctant, then the insurance companies are reluctant and so on and so forth.
0: So one thing that stood out to me in your story is something you just mentioned there, which is the presence of Spinraza, the Biogen SMA treatment, which costs about $375,000 a year, and a lot of these kids are already on it. So for the insurers and, and maybe particularly the state Medicaid programs, they've balked at the idea of paying, like we said, $2.1 million more for Zolgensma. And I guess, you know, from a budgetary standpoint, do, do they kind of have a point in being wary of the costs here?
3: Well, it's $375,000 a year for life, whereas Zolgensma is a one-time treatment for $2.1 million. If at least Benraza pans out the way it's supposed to, that could be a very, very long time. And the 375 a year could easily outpace the 2.1 million. So, for a lot of the families, they actually don't think budget-wise that it's not quite feasible for insurance companies to want to pay for Spinraza over Solgensma.
2: So, what strikes me as noteworthy, maybe a little sad and frustrating, is that in our current healthcare system, more and more patients and their families need to use social media to shame their insurance carriers into paying for life-saving medicines. Did this come up in the course of your reporting as you spoke to these families?
3: Yeah, one thing I kept hearing from families over and over again is how frustrated they were that many of these insurance companies were handing down their decision without ever having met the kids. I think for them, using social media was a way to sort of cut out the middlemen of physicians or hospital liaisons and go directly to the insurance companies because all they've been hearing uh, from these insurance companies is through letters. In fact, the main character in the story, Maisie, her mom insisted that representatives from their insurance company actually meet with Maisie and the mom before they uh, handed down their final decision because she thought once they met Maisie, it would be impossible for them to say no. Whether the meeting changed things is difficult to say, but they did change their mind after After that meeting with Maisie and her mom at the end of July.
1: Now, of course, SMA is not the only serious disease treated by especially expensive medicines. Is Maisie's army considering lending its support to patients outside
3: of the SMA community? That's not something that they've talked about specifically. They are in the process of setting up a nonprofit because they want to help as many kids with SMA as possible. But considering how driven these volunteers are, I would not be surprised if that's something that they um, involve themselves with down the road.
0: Shuda, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: A little more than one year has passed since biotech investor and entrepreneur Brad Longcar launched an exchange-traded fund focused on China's booming biotech industry.
2: The China BioPharma ETF, which trades under the ticker symbol CHNA, allows investors to buy and sell a basket of biotech and pharma stocks that are either headquartered in China or rely on the Chinese market for more than half of their revenue or pipeline potential.
0: And Brad was a guest on this podcast when his China ETF launched. And so he returns this week for a progress report and to give us some new and ideally hot takes on China's biopharma industry. Brad, welcome back to The Read Out Loud.
4: Thanks a lot, everyone. It's great to be back. So, Brad, uh, the one-year
2: return on the China biopharma ETF is right now negative 6%, which isn't stellar. But in your defense, over the same period, investing equally in the widely followed and more diversified XBI biotech ETF would have yielded a return of negative 11%. So by that relative measure, you are on top. What can we take away from one year's performance in this basket of China-focused drug stocks?
4: Well, I think if you look at the fundamentals, it's all speed ahead. You know, today there's 12 really compelling biotech and pharma companies that are trading in Hong Kong that didn't exist a year ago. So that's an important thing.
1: So Rod, let's talk a little bit more about those IPOs in Hong Kong. As you mentioned, your ETF started right around the same time that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange liberalized its listing requirements to allow these development stage Chinese biopharma companies to go public there. If you had to give a letter grade to those IPOs over the past year, what would it be and why?
4: I would give it a B. You know, first impressions are really hard to to shake. And the first few were frankly terrible. (laughs) I would would rank the first few a D or, or maybe even an F. And the reason for that is when this first started, there was kind of unbridled enthusiasm. And those first few really went off at shockingly high valuations and they traded very poorly afterwards. And that, I think, for the casual observer is what really formed people's opinions of what's going on there. But there was really a turn. In the late fall of last year, some great companies went off at more reasonable valuations. So I think the market there learned that the expectations were a little too high, and and companies kind of dialed things back a little bit. And now there's been a lot of successful IPOs
0: since then. So Brad, before we started recording, you mentioned that you have traveled to China six times over the past year. And obviously, you've met with a lot of Chinese biopharma companies and stakeholders. What have you learned about the development and approval of new drugs within China and how those drugs are priced and paid for relative to what we're used to in the United States and Europe?
4: Probably the number one thing I've learned in talking to executives is one of the most important things that's happened that's allowed all of this to be is China joined something called ICH a year and a half ago. So ICH was created by FDA, EMA and Japan and it was meant to harmonize regulatory standards throughout the globe. That was a very important reform China joining ICH because it put all of their companies on the same track and developing drugs the same way that we do in Europe and the United States. In terms of reimbursement, that's something that we're actually is kind of still a work in progress and I would recommend that everyone circle late September or early October because there's going to be an update of the national reimbursement drug list. And to succeed in China, you have to be on that. And this first round of innovative drugs that have been developed and approved are being negotiated right now. So the class that I would really zero in on is the PD-1s, you know. Merck, for example, is charging half, uh, about $80,000 right now for Keytruda in China that they are in the U.S. And amazingly, there's a Chinese company, Junxi, that priced their PD-1 at $30,000. And those are all self-pay prices. And all of those companies right now are negotiating with the government to get on that reimbursement list. So the result of that in October is going to tell us what the business model for these drugs look like
1: some news regarding CFIUS. That's a federal interagency group that can block deals deemed to pose a threat to national security. So earlier this year, CFIUS forced a US digital health company to find a new buyer because of national security concerns about its China-based owner. So that news came amid greater scrutiny of foreign investments in US companies, mostly with Chinese investments in mind. So Brad, what's been the reaction to this new policy in China, particularly in the Chinese biopharma sector?
4: Without a doubt, it's changed investment in the U.S. dramatically. You know, part of the issue with that is the lack of clarity about who this really applies to and who it doesn't. Most of the things that Cifius has gotten involved in right now has to do with patient databases, And things that are, you know, heavily rely on privacy and personal information. It's unclear if they will scrutinize, you know, standard therapeutic investments. There's really no clear ground rules. And we're expecting to hear more on that later on this fall from the government. So... Hopefully that'll improve things a lot. You know, the sad thing is, I think it's who it's going to hurt the most is small U.S. biotech startups that are looking for Series A and Series B investment rounds because, you know, Chinese money has been a big source of that over the last couple of years.
2: So, Brad, on a related note, I wanted to ask you about the escalating trade war between China and the U.S., Has this had a demonstrable effect on the supply of medicines or materials required to make medicines here in the U.S.?
4: You know, interestingly, this is one sector that really shouldn't be fundamentally impacted by the trade war as you classically think of it. So, for example, there are no meaningful tariffs on medicines because if you think about it, that would raise drug prices and neither country wants that. There's actually one thing about the trade war that potentially is a positive. One thing that actually is tangibly being discussed within the confines of that is the exclusivity of biologics in China. So in the U.S., we have 12 years of exclusivity and China is looking for nine. And, you know, you might hear that and say, well, gosh, that's a lot less. Well, first of all, the new NAFTA that was negotiated, Canada, Mexico and the U.S. agreed on 10 And if you ask biotech executives, you know, they'll say for this, the fact that it's being negotiated at all and potentially being put down in writing and and set in stone is a
0: hugely positive thing. So Brad, you mentioned the coming reimbursement decision that's so key to Chinese biopharma companies, but... Are there any other events or milestones that we should be watching for during the rest of this year and into 2020?
4: Something that actually just happened last night that I think is interesting is, you know, one of the leaders in this space is BiGene, and they have a BTK inhibitor. And they just announced last night that they filed with US FDA and received a February 27th PADUFA date. And that's actually months ahead of schedule. We didn't expect them to file that until early next year. And That technically could be a historic approval. That would be you a first example of uh, a drug really developed by a Chinese company that could potentially be approved by FDA. One thing I should bring up is the exchange in mainland China is doing the same thing that Hong Kong did. They're starting to allow the IPOs of pre-revenue and pre-profit biotech companies, and they've created this thing called the Star Market that they're kind of calling their version of NASDAQ. And already there's one biotech company that listed there. It's called Chipscreen Biosciences. And that was very successful. It's up like 300%. So... I would watch that as a potential alternative listing venue for these companies as well, especially with everything that's going on in Hong Kong right now. I think companies are reevaluating their options. So we'll have to see if that becomes a successful listing venue for biotechs as well.
2: Brad, thanks again for chatting with us.
4: It's my pleasure.
0: That does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud.
1: Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode.
0: Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode. Are
2: you gung-ho on Chinese biopharma stocks? You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you.
1: See you next week.